Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Part two. Part two? It two, part two. So, hello. Welcome back to the big interview. I'm Graham Hunter, and you're in part two of Michael Bridges. I'm absolutely certain if you listen to part one, you're queuing up to listen to part two. And, and please, tell people, tell friends, tell enemies if you want. I don't care. Tell the local librarian. Shh. But at all costs, stay tuned for part two of Michael Bridges. Part one is still available if you haven't heard it. And if you stumbled onto this first, then back to front, there's no way to live, people. Come on. In this one, you're going to hear what it's like to play against some of the toughest centre-backs of the 90s. We'll also explain how two of the greatest, asterisk, most evil, dressing room revenge pranks of all time went down. And Mr Bridges, who's now an analyst on Premier League broadcasts and Champions League broadcasts with Optus in Australia, which is where he ended his playing playing career and still lives. How Michael breaks down what he loves about the new Leeds, the promoted Leeds, or should we just say Bielsa's Leeds? This, with no more fanfare, although he merits more. This is Michael Bridges part two. I have to take you to the European adventure because um, clearly at the you know at the stage of the season where I think you you go unbeaten and it's mainly wins in about fourteen you you go up the top of the Premier League, but Leeds really hadn't been a European um, force since pretty much since they were cheated out of the I mean and cheated is the word out of the European Cup final against Bayern Munich in nineteen seventy five when subsequently the referees proven to have been bent. You know, there's an absolute stick-on goal by Lorimer, etc. Therefore, I imagine that when you beat Partizan away and you take a 3-1 lead home, it's only 1-0 in the second leg, but I imagine that there's a fervour 
that there's get me tickets, have to win this one, a passion. And, and it's also, you know, friendlies aside, it's your first two competitive European fixtures. Did Europe matter to you automatically? Had you grown up thinking that Europe and European football was important? Do you know what it is? When I signed for Leeds, I'd, I'd forgot that they had actually made it the UEFA um, Cup, as it were, then. And it was a bit of a bonus when I realised that we had European ties to come for the first time in my career. You know, I'd, I'd travelled overseas with the England under-21s and the, the 18s, but to be part of a, a senior team that were going into Europe, um, it was it was new to me. So I think that game against Partizan was behind closed doors. We played that in Holland. And it was a way to recall that there was different styles of football for me overseas from different teams. And I was kind of like, whoa, that was interesting because it was you didn't normally see teams play with a back five. Um, in in the Premier League, uh, I mean, correct us if I'm wrong, but I, you know it was normally up against two two centre halves, and the the fullbacks were bombing on. That kind of sweeper system hadn't been. It was the first time I'd come up against three three defenders that were tight and narrow, and they had a back five. They were they were tough to break down. So you have to figure, you have to go figure on on the hoof kind of thing. Well, well, as a team, I mean, we'd done the analysis. You know, you'd seen it, but I'm looking at the board and thinking, well, oh, this is going to be new. So it, it was really good to see a different style of play from different um, different cultures, different teams going into Europe. It was actually harder. I think we got a better result away than we did at home. But again, going into going going to places and travelling over to to Russia, we played a lot of teams in Russia. We we'd had a great result against Roma. That was a tough place to go, by the way. Going to there, there um, when we played Roma, Aldair, Candela, Cafu, uh, Montella, Del Vecchio, Totti, De, De Rossi. You, you know, we're playing against. I'm playing against these people that had luck looked up to and just admired for so many years in international football um, and you, you've got to up your game it was a, a, an interesting atmosphere but what I think the club not only were the players learning in Europe as well and like it was my first taste of it my first experience in Europe the club were as well as a whole because we didn't really take a security team with us and the the antics that went on in Russia from the the opposition I remember getting room service at 11 o'clock at night which I never ordered there's a knock on the door I remember the fire alarms going off at twelve o'clock on our floor, and then room service again at two. So you know, the, all these it was it was interesting. Uh, the club were learning as well what to go through uh, in in the antics that were going on. So I think the following year in the Champions League, it was that we were a lot better prepared because we had our own security team that came with us. We had our own floors and landings. So there's a lot of things the club were learning as we went as well. Um, and like you say, you just it it was great to play against these teams that I had admired as a kid. But you realise that you know you, you you belong there now, so you're up against them, and you've, you're working out all the different tactics and how you had the home and a leg. You might play different to what we did at home as we did in the away leg when you're just trying to get a result away to bring them back home. So again, just the joys of the learning education of football and how you've got to embrace it. And I must have just been a very quick learner. Do you remember well the the the, the Roma ties? Because it strikes me, and I could be wrong. That's the Leeds players who'd carried over from the season before owed them one because Roma had knocked them out the year before. They just, I know Newcastle was more your dad's heart than necessarily yours because Spurs had won your heart, but they'd knocked Newcastle at 1 0 Totti in the previous round. And and you named them, but Nakata was playing, Candela was a World Cup winner, uh, Aldair, Antonioli had incre- incredible saves in the first leg, Tomasi was top class, Montella, Totti, Del Vecchio. And Capello going absolutely mental in both legs. And and if I'm not wrong, 
you know, I, I think you must have gone into that with with not just the the, um, the lure of qualification as a big thing or playing in the Olympic Stadium as a big thing. There was a lot riding on it for those who'd been beaten the year before for you and your dad. Your dad must have been aching for you to put Roma right. And and it was a there was a bit of violence in the first leg. Antonio Carlos elbows Harry Kuehl in the full in the face in Rome and gets clean away with it. And that's a debt that gets settled in the second leg. It was one huge soap opera, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And the, you could feel that atmosphere. The lads were all up for it. And like you said, until I heard the the story why in the pre-team talk that was given, you know, this is this is one we owe them. But the, the they were very physical and nasty team. It was the kind of. Aldair that I played against a Brazilian, very, very clever. Every time the ball was at the other end of the field, he would be um, pulling me hair, be kicking us in the shins. He'd give us a, he'd give us a nice gobby in the back of the head as well, spatting the back of my head. Everything he could to put us off my game. And, you know, it was, it was kind of like, you know, if you, if you go under here, young man, and you let him get the better of you, then you're going to crumble. He's putting you off your game. And I'll just never forget just when the, the ball was at the other end of the field, I'd give him a right good bloody, um, knuckle punch in the, in the midriff. When I turned around and, um, you know, it, it was on for young and old, as I called it, because they were a very experienced team. But we give them a hell of a run for their money and knocked them out. And there was no more satisfaction. Then can I ask you a question that intrigues me? Because you try as a, as a broadcaster, as a journalist, you'll do the same, but I do. Never having played the game at your level, not to be hypocritical. So I admit, and we had Michael Carrick saying that he misses the pure aggression and the digs, and the wild tackles, and the tunnel behaviour of Manchester United Arsenal. And, you know, I'm talking to a man who's been put out of the absolute elite level of your career at Besiktas by, you know, a problem, you know, a tackle. Protecting footballers like you is a big deal. But that one-on-one you've had with Aldair that you remember to this day that, that helps forge you as a man, VAR would have had both of you off there. Now, he's done the wrong thing. Anybody who talks about spitting on the pitch, it's just it's automatically red. But you've been able to get one back. You've been able to do something. That, I, in all honesty, I miss in our game. But VAR, which I like in general, has taken away a little bit of, all right, me and you out of the game and I think there's a little bit of a loss there yeah I agree and that's why you know it's been interesting living in Australia because what you see and there's a game over here AFL the Aussie Rules Football that's still allowed to go on at other ends of the field you know what I mean they'll still have that old little nargy-bargy they'll have a little bit of a dig and I enjoy going to watch that at a live stadium rather than the TV because you see all these little mini I call it winning the battle and you can win the battle in two different ways you can win the battle by playing the game better than them, or you can win the battle by being nasty and not letting them get the better of you, whether it's going to be winning the header, giving them a bit of grief in the sideline. So I, I totally agree. That that side of the game has gone. There's there's still some crafty stuff goes on inside, in, well, at the other end of the field, penalty areas, but there's too many cameras to actually get away with it these days. So I, I agree solely with what you're saying because there's a lot of things I remember learning as a player from playing against people like Aldair, Martin Keown and Tony Adams, who were the masters at it. Absolute masters. And um, I'll, I'll never take that away. But back back in the, you know, with the, with the VR, I think there's a lot of things them players couldn't have got away with. There's a lot of players now don't have to hide. Because I think, you know, comparing, Dennis didn't have to play up against Keown all that often. But Dennis was not scared, like you're talking about, about if he's buying his real estate, he bought some of it with his elbows. And, and he, he would leave one on you, say, listen, if you're coming after me, you're going to get it right back, which was terrific. But there was a lot of, I mean, there's no question, a lot of players would hide, not just hide from a one-on-one with Keon, but wouldn't show for the ball in the way that we, 
we all think you did, you always showed. Because it's not, bravery isn't just like, I bring on your physicality. It's like, I'm going to put myself in a position where I know that I'm going to get hit in full and I'm going to hit and hit. So, so VAR has, has has hidden a lot of footballers who, who weren't that brave in both senses of the word. I agree. And Peter Reid was, you know, like I say, he was, he was a great one for me. He says, don't be scared of getting kicked. He said, if they're going to come and kick you, he said, get get yourself half-cocked, ready to jump. And he said, you can get out of the way because he said, what I'm wanting you to do, you'll suck that defender in, they're going to try and smash you, they'll get a yellow card, and then you're going to win the game for us because they'll either get sent off or they can't touch you after that. So he used to call it riding the tackle. So it was funny, when I left Sunderland and I played for Leeds, they had a lad called Paul Butler sent a half. And I knew what the team talk was in the dressing room at, at Sunderland. Peter Reid was saying, Butts, you go through him early doors, try and do him and get him off the field. You know, he'll, he'll stay down. So I remember just sucking the tackling from Paul Butler. Sure enough, he came in, he went to kick us. I've just jumped and ridden the tackle. I've gone down and milked it a little bit. And um, sure enough, Butts has got the yellow card. I've jumped up and I've gone to him and said, the gaffer told you to do his head, didn't he? He said, yeah, he said, aye. He said, but now, he said, now you've got me in my pocket, haven't you? I said, aye, good on you. So it was, you know, you can, you can read what's going to happen at times. There's no way, I mean, I don't know if you want to stop at Slavia Prague, and I also don't know how long you want to stop um, on Galatasaray, but you've categorised this European run as, as great for experience, learning about different styles of football. Uh, it also helped the club be ready for what was a glorious and, and, and remarkable, painful for you, second season in Europe in the Champions League. But, you know, I can't, You've mentioned um, both uh, Kevin and Chris by name. When you're a footballer uh, with a club that's got a, a kind of family atmosphere, and I presume that often fans travelled on the, the, the club flight, so I presume that these people were at least, if, they, if you didn't know them, people probably knew of them, and, and they're killed at a football match. Um, without going into the, the criminality of the behaviour of the fans in Istanbul, how do you deal with that kind of knowledge that this has happened um, in a city where you've got to play a game of football? We, we didn't. Simple as that. We we didn't. Um, some of the boys were very friendly with, um, you know, Chris and Kev. They they were they were big, passionate followers of, of the football club. And it was a, it was a, the night we found out. I'll never forget. We were at, we were at dinner, and it was we were told that Kevin and Chris had been stabbed in Istanbul. And they died, and straight away, the the captain Lucas Radibi was like, "Well, we know we not play the game. Game's off. We're not playing." And everybody backed him and just said, "You're right. Well, we're not playing this game." Uh, it, it wasn't because we're a very young team. Do you know what I mean? So what, what what's happened here? We've kind of gone, "Whoa, you know, th- there's more to football. This is life." Do you know what I mean? Two guys have travelled. They've been murdered. It's it's you know it, it was wrong. And when I, when I look back, if you if you have a look at the results after Leeds United against Galatasaray, we were flying at Christmas. We were top of the Premier League. I I look back at that. We at the first game back, we give flowers out to the fans. We were playing Arsenal. You know, we 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 got many teams got destroyed off Arsenal, but we just weren't in the right headspace. Our results went downhill. There was more to it. The lads were were shell shocked, especially some of the boys that knew them very very well. And I think what we regret now, especially I do. When I look back at that game, UEFA made us play the game. We had to play it. We were told we'd be kicked out of the competition. I think if we we as a club should have taken a bigger stance on this as players and as staff 
and said, well, kick us out of the competition then and we, we will stand. We will not play this game because I think that would have gone down and sent shockwaves around Europe and potentially got Galatasaray kicked out of the competition because I know if that had happened the other way around in England, we would have been classed as hooligans and would have been kicked out of the competition anyway. It's it's one of my biggest regrets, um, I've got to be honest with you, when I look back, that we didn't make a stance because it was it was it was shocking it was and i i i haven't i didn't know you were going to say that and, and i admire you for it and I, but i've got huge sympathy for um because at that stage i guess you're 21 and i think to take a strong decision about I, i'm going to get with the guys in the dressing room and stand up to the club because eventually it's the club that's taking the decision that you have to play to to absent yourself if 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 you let's say you 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 felt absolutely steadfast in your own conviction that day and said, okay, well, the club can play. I'm not playing. Certainly, your point was the club should have taken it and, and everybody should have stood together with pe- people that maybe felt part of a family. Every player in that, every player at that dinner table took the stance and said the game's off. I'll never forget. We were all like, we're not playing the game. It's off. And then even even going to the stadium the following day, we had a we had an armored truck follow us with a water cannon. You know, you get the, the cutthroat gestures off the fans. It was a very intimidating place. Coins were getting thrown on the park at Harry Kuehl, who was collecting the money and putting his socks and things. It was, you know, that that didn't scare us after after that. The the atmosphere it was it was horrible, intimidating because all of our minds were just on what what you know we've got to play the game. This is so wrong, but let's go and try and and get a result done and get it for these two for these two lads. And sadly, we couldn't because the return leg, we, like I say, we were just shattered and obliterated because there was a lot of press around it. There was media. There was talk that the fans were going to, you know, try and and do a, a get revenge um, at home. And it, it was just there was just too much involved, Graham. It, it didn't it didn't sit well. So look, looking back, it's very good in hindsight when you look back. But um, I think we could have done a lot more as a as a club and as players. I appreciate what you've said, and um, I think it's a dilemma each of us w- would need to look at and wonder how strong we would be. It, it, it's good to know that everybody in the playing side uh, wanted not to play. Hard to, to stand up for your principles if the people that pay your wages said, this is what you must do. But maybe it's just a moment to, to remember that these two young men that supported Leeds, uh, one of whom was a family man, I think, um, were, were murdered and, and people were sent to jail. When you set yourself up for your second season at Leeds, can you remember thinking, that's it, I've made that, I'm here, summer's easy, no problem, completely different to 12 months ago? Or did you have to reset in any way and think, um, hmm, all right, I'm, I'm going to have to up my game. How does Michael Bridges go into that second season at Leeds? Obviously, after that that first season, getting the 21 goals in, in Premier League in Europe, it was it was a massive wake-up call and a, and a reality check. And I thought, you know what it is? You've, you, you should look how hard you worked last year in pre-season to get where you're going to be. You, you know, you've got to battle on your hands again. You've got to get back to them levels. And then, lo and behold, we, we signed a guy called Mark Viduka, an Australian. And I saw this lad turn up at the training grounds. And I'll tell you what, if there's any time you need a reality check to say you're going to have to work as hard, if not harder, to, to get a position and keep your place and play up front with this lad, it was Mark Viduka. He was just outstanding. I think he's the only player I've seen in my career... We have a game called Sheva. So, you know, all the lads are on the outside. The two people go in the middle. You lose the ball, you go in the middle. I've, n- I've never saw Mark Viduka go in the middle. 
because he never gave the bloody ball away. And if he did, he'd make an excuse and want to fight everybody else to say, no, I'm not going in. But he was that, he was that bloody good and you weren't going to mess with a big man. So he, he was the catalyst for me to say, let's, let's get this on. And I think that was a tough decision for O'Leary at first because there was a lot of games that was me, Smith and, and Viduka played together and I dropped in behind the two of them. And I wasn't playing as well as I would have liked. I was finding it hard to, to, to run in behind because... It, you know, I'm playing in a, a different position, and it, I found it very, very tough. But it was obviously due to the to the competition that had come along, and I was just starting to find my feet. And then, obviously, the injury came um, against Besiktas, which is it was it wasn't 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 pretty. It was a, a career threatening injury, but that I'd got myself back to a point in that season because of Mark Viduka signing, and because of the hard work yet again, because I knew I had to replicate what what I'd done the year before. So. It was the, you know, I was up for the fight and we were we were all in it together as a team. And then, you know, playing so many Champions League matches against Barcelona's and things in the group stages and, and really feeling like you'd belonged and in a place to becoming a fan for the rest of the season because I was on crutches, I was in a cast. It was a nightmare, absolute nightmare. But it was a, it made us refocus um, my goals and what I had to do to get back to, to playing again. And... I could have quite easily given up, Graham, because I was offered a, an insurance claim and to say that I'd retire from football and I'd quit the game. And thankfully, I didn't take that money because Dave Hancock, the physio at the time, who was, you know, I owe him absolutely everything. He, he saved my career. He said, don't take the money, Michael. He said, you can't take the insurance claim. He said, because if you touch a ball and take any payment in the future, you, you, you know, you, you you've got that chance to play again, believe in us. And I did, I stuck by him. I literally might have slept at his house for the amount of sessions that I put in with him. And um, like I say, when I look back, 14 months of hard work, you go to dark places, you bounce back, some days are high, some days are low. Uh, it's it, it was a tough, tough yakka, but it makes you want something that you love. And I wanted, I think I might have taken it for granted, um, the football career. And when, it's, when somebody takes away from you, I'll tell you what, you'll do anything to get it back. We, we've got socios, Michael, who are our, our members, our supporters, who've been with us since we began this podcast and helped us crowdfund. One of them is Gustavo Bagatini. And Gustavo asked an interesting question. It's hypothetical, but you will, I guess you will have considered it. Gustavo says, do you think that the changes in rehabilitation and technology that are available today would have lessened the impact that that injury specifically had on your career if these techniques, if this technology had been available after the Besiktas injury, I would like to think so. The way it's way it's come on, but I'll never forget the surgeon's words when he when he looked at the MRI scan. He realised the damage that I'd done. He said he'd only ever seen it in a motorbike accident. That's how much damage I'd done. I'd snapped three ligaments. It wasn't the bones that I'd snapped that were the. It was the problem. It was the actual ligaments around the ankle. Um, and I, for anybody that understands in a medical term, I'd snapped the um, retinacular sheath, which holds in your big toe mechanism. And that snapped, so my, my big toe was paralysed. I'd lost the lost the ability to, to walk or even feel the ankle. And, and what had happened, it, I'd had an internal bleed as well, which was pretty... It, it, that, that started about four days after Besiktas had flown back. 
And I was very lucky that I phoned the physio, Dave Hancock, and said, mate, the, my leg up to my knee has literally gone black. And he said, we've got to get you in ASAP to get it operated on. So, you know, I think possibly we did everything in our power back then. Um, maybe we could have found the injury a little bit sooner with a new technology. But I still think, I'll never forget, it still echoes in my head what the surgeon said. A motorbike accident is what I've seen this in. He said, you'll never play again. So I'd... I would like to think so because of the technology and this stuff available, but it was it was horrendous. I've still got the video of the operation, but I, I can't watch it. <laughs> they did a case study on the operation. They wanted to use it as a as an example and to use it to show people, um, other surgeons and other physios around the world. They used they used my ankle with Dave Hancock and the surgeon to um, to help educate other people that had ne- that would never see this sports injury before. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview, and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show, and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten, and David Goldblatt. Here's David Winner on his legendary, scintillating book, Brilliant Orange. The book chimed perfectly with what the Dutch did in, in Euro 2000. They played the book almost, exactly as I described, they played, and then they tragically, ridiculously, disastrously, unbearably lost in the, in the semi-final, this crazy game. And one of the big newspapers in Holland, the NRC Handelsblad, had a big page, like a whole front page of their review section the day after the, the Italy game. And it was all, you know, David Winner predicted this. And then years later, I discovered that they had two versions. <laughs> the other one, if, if Holland had won that game, it said, David Winner's got it completely wrong. He doesn't understand anything. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kudos to the surgeon Dave Hancock because over your career you've gone on to play, you know, well over three hundred and fifty professional games. I, I guess without dwelling on it, what we the reason that we wanted to speak to you is what we expected at the, when we saw your vision and your interpretation of the game and your finishing was was probably trophies and England caps and and, and although listen as a Scot and and you abandoned us. And Ricky Spreja, you know, I wasn't going to bring it up, but, you know, it's got to be put in there. You could have been a Scot, you could have been played for the mighty Scot, you could still be playing for them the way we're going at the moment, eh? In all honesty, that's again, that's true, right? It was interesting because we never knew where where the background in Scotland had come from. And until I went into Rick's, the manager's office, Peter Reid's office, and I was playing for the youth team in the reserves. And I walked down to the office, I was summoned into Reedy's office, 
And I thought, oh, shit, what have I done? I'm going to get wrong here. Like, so lo and behold, I walks in, knocks on the door, he lets us in, and Rick Sprazier sat there with him and Peter Reed, and they both had a bit of paper with them. And Peter Reed said to Rick, you go first. And Rick says, well, here you go, Michael. He has a, a letter from the Scottish FA saying, would you like to represent Scotland in the European Championships? And Peter Reed said, and I'll just stop you there. He said, because I've got a letter here from the English FA saying, would you like to represent them in the game in four nights' time? And they're playing against Scotland. And I was like, what? I was like, where's this come from? I didn't even know I had Scottish history or heritage. So, you know, I, I was, I didn't even have time to think about it because Peter Reed literally said, or Rick Spurger said to me, if you don't sign for play for Scotland, you'll never play for the youth team ever again. And the gaffer really said, and if you don't take my bit of paper, you'll never play for this football club ever again. I quickly grabbed the English FA letter and I um, headed off to the England camp and played against Scotland. So there you go. Blame Peter Reid. Easy choice. And, and Peter Reid's quite a persuasive guy. But I will, I will point out to you, you didn't need a relative. You'd visited Berwick and Berwick play in the Scottish League. So that's enough. That's enough. You qualified for us immediately. You went and played against Celtic Rangers and Berwick. Our sponsors, our lovely sponsors, Bet365 asked us this question, that when you scored the 19 domestic goals in that 1999-2000 season, it was the same amount of goals as Andy Cole. You outscored Terry Henry and Paolo Di Canio. Once you'd done that, how did it feel to be one of the most clinical strikers in England? Very, very surreal and very humbling to think that you, you know, I'd looked up to them players the season before I was in the championship with Sunderland and I was looking up to them and and just thinking... You know what can I take out of out of their game to put into my game, and just to see my name up there, like you say, it, it's still it's I don't I don't know it was just very humbling, and it it's still to this day I still can't even describe it because it, it it still doesn't sink, and I still look at that team that lineup what you're on about with the the top goal scorers. There's only one thing that re, it's such an I admire it so much, but there's only one thing that pisses me off. The guy that I left Sunderland because I couldn't get a game ahead of, Kev Phillips, he won it that year. So he still had one over on us <laughs> because he was absolutely unbelievable. So we we had a laugh about that. I said, I've gone to get away from you, but I still can't get the golden boot because you've bloody won it as well. I think Shearer got second that year. He made us promise, Kevin, that when he was on here, we would always refer to him as Kevin Golden Boot Phillips. So uh, you don't have to, but we have to by contract. I think if you look back over time, Niall Quinn had a massive impact on both of our careers because he, Quinny mentored me. I, I didn't get to play with Quinny as much as I would have liked because it was me and Danny Diccio as well, again, the little and large. But the way Niall Quinn mentored me as a kid, um, you know, to room with a 19-year-old, what, a 17, 18-year-old lad when you're a senior pro and to take us under his wing and look after us, you know, I was, I was on £40 a week. And this guy, Quinny, would let us order room service. He would look after us. He would give us a, a, a bonus of 20 quid if I'd look after his car um, at the training ground or wash it for him. Just things like that. You'll never forget how, how he mentored me and developed me and would take us after after training, would go and do some shooting practices together. My, my heading ability was shocking. So I, I learned so much off Quinny, how to time your runs, how to how to get leverage and get get up because he was one of the best in the business at it. And then again, looking from when me and Kev, we challenge each other every day with finishing on, on the floor. Um, but I think like my admiration for Kev's finishing is, is up here at the top end. But the admiration for Quinny, what he, what he passed on to both of us, um, can't go and recognise. He, he, he was just a marvellous man and a marvellous footballer. Being a smart man, you'll have known, having done my research, this question was coming. Because 
I've heard a lot of football prank stories. And the single most evil, devastating thing I've ever heard in my life, uh, you told, and in fact, you did. And, and, it, and it concerns a Porsche Cayenne. Are you in the mood to explain your Machiavellian brilliance at paying people back? I'm quite happy because if you mess with fire, you're going to get burned sooner or later, Graham. That's my motto in life. And I I was reading the Gaza autobiography, which is why I got this little gem of a a prank in my my locker, you know, for a rainy day. I I was known at every football club I was at as the worst dress man. I just would grab what was in the cupboard, you know, put it on and whether I... I used to get stick. I don't give a crap. Hence why I'm in Australia and wear bodies, thongs and a T-shirt and nobody cares. So it's um, the, the best part about it was I'd been shopping down in London. My wife had taken us down there and she says, listen, I'm going to get you some decent clothes. I'm sick of people taking the piss out of you. So we'd been to a place called, I'll never forget, the place called the library. I've got my gear and I got back up to the, to the airport and I realised that I couldn't go home in time. I'm late for training, so I've taken the clothes with us in my bags to the training ground. Now, I know what the general pranks are. If it's your birthday, you get your gear cut up that you're wearing, generally, or... If you come with your shopping bags, you're going to get the gear that you're wearing chopped up as well. So I was I was ready for this. I thought, right, I've got my shopping bags here. No problems. The gear's going to get cut up. So lo and behold, I comes in after training. I went to put my jumper on. As I put my jumper on, the sleeve's fallen off. And I thought, yeah, I've been done here. So I went to put me went to put the jeans on. Sure enough, the, the jeans, as you put it through, I've ripped the bottoms off them. They're, they're cut to shreds. And the lads had cut Umbro diamond figures out because I was sponsored by Umbro at the time. Along with, you know, and they'd, they'd put the old diamonds in right the way down the front of the jeans. So it was it was funny. I get it. There was a couple of lads left in the dressing room. Andy O'Brien was one of them. And um, it was the other lad. Aaron Hughes was the other lad. So they were back at training. Everybody else has left. And as I went to get me shopping in the clothes that were in my bag to put on, because I'm having a laugh that my gear's being cut up, leather jacket cut to shreds, jeans cut to shreds, Jumpers and shirts cut to shreds. Now I'm not, you know, I've got a quite a, a lot of gear in there, and I'm, I'm going. This is borderline. I'm, I'm not having this. So I, straight away, if you ever need to go into the trenches or into court, never take Andy O'Brien with you because he will tell everything. <laughs> Thankfully, Ob was in the. Um, he looks like Screech off Saved by the Bell. If any of people, you know, don't know who Ob is, just get a picture of Screech off Saved by the Bell and Andy O'Brien. The, the nose and the haircut, fantastic, great lad. I turned around to him, I said, OB, I said, who's done this? And he, he looked all over the dressing room walls and I said, give his eye contact, <laughs> who's done it? Because he, he he can't lie, bless him, it's unbelievable, it's a, it's a, it's a great trait to have. And he went, Kieran, Kieran's done you. I went, right, that'll do me, thank you. So being, being from the northeast, living in North Shields where we've got the fish markets, there was a lad called Anthony Ishimore, who used to play at Newcastle School of Excellence with us. He grew up there. He, he never got the chance to make it professionally. And Ishi had a fish and chip shop. So I went down to see Ishi, my mate, and I said, have you got any bags of offal? Now, offal is just all the off bits of the fish that they bag up, and it, it absolutely stinks. So I've taken it one one level further than Gaza. You know, I'm not going for the fish. I'm, I'm going the full hog here. <laughs> So Ishi Ish, said, what do you want three bags of offal for? I said, yeah, I don't know. I'll not tell you now, but you'll probably read about it. You'll definitely read about it in the press or something because there's going to be hell on. So I've driven to my mother's house and I've got this bag of offal. It's got to stay in, in the house overnight. So I've put it out the back of the house because it's, it's honking. 
So the next day, he gets in the car, drives to the training ground. I've got, I can remember holding the bags of offal out the car window because I couldn't have it in the car. I was nearly vomiting. So I get to the training ground. Anyway, Davy and all the boys, the security men were there. They're like, what are you going to do, lad? I said, listen, when Kieran's car pulls up today, because we used to hand the keys to Davy, the security man, and he would park the cars for us or wash them. I said, Davy, when he comes in, I said, I'm going to do Kieran's car with these offal. He's cut me gear up. He went, oh, brilliant. He said, couldn't have happened to a nicer bloke. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll even put the security cameras on you, on his car so we can video it when he opens the car door. Brilliant. So, you know, it's nice when you know all the lads from the area and, and whatnot, they're on your side. So, because I, I don't deal with arrogance very well. So this was, you know, me and Kieran have still got still got a few issues. I like to be in that humble space and I, I need it. I thought, I've got to rein him in here. So it was a glorious day. He was late for training again. So he's revving his Porsche Cayenne like you wouldn't believe. So Davey comes running in. He says, Bridgie, I've got his keys, lad. So I'll never forget. I can feel the heat on the engine coming through. So we've, I've popped the bonnet. And as I poured it on, it was like a barbecue. It started fizzling. <laughs> so me and Davey are laughing with heads off. I'm going, this is brilliant. So I did the gazer. I lifted up the spare tyre. I put one in his boot. The smell, man, we're gagging. I've put the tyre back in, shut it all down. The biggest mistake that I made in the Porsche Cayenne, it had like a suede interior. So the glove box was cream with a suede. And as I poured, I took his CDs out. He had Celine Dion CDs and that in there, so I took them out. And I, I, poured, a bag, <laughs> I poured a bag of offal into the glove box. And I shut the glove box. And all of a sudden... It was like a sponge. It had absorbed all the bloody blood and it was started seeping across the dashboard and I'm thinking, oh, I think I might have gone one step too far here. Like, So anyway, Kieran never admitted to cut me gear up, by the way, so he'd never owned up to it. So long story short, Friday afternoon, the team bus pulls up. He doesn't even go back to his car. So we go away for the away game. It's had 48 hours to fester in the heat. Davy, the security man, sent us a screenshot from the security camera of a white cat sitting at the back of Kieran's car, which for me is just absolutely priceless. You know, the cat's gagging for the fish. So as we came back, I've quickly got off in my car and thought, I'm not hanging around here. And you, this, the security footage, you see Kieran open the door and the smell must hit him. And then my phone goes off. Well, it was on for young and old. I just And I denied it to the hilt until um, I left the club and I said, you know, you, I just remember saying, you mess with fire, you got burnt. And he never touched us ever again, mate. So it was a, it was absolutely bloody brilliant. And and Lord, you know what was even funnier? He was in the um, Celebrity Jungle in the UK recently, I believe. He was what I had him. He, he went into Celebrity Jungle, Kieran. And what they do, they, they have it in Brisbane in Australia. And I knew a couple of the people that were on the set. And I said, listen, you've got to do us a favour. I said, if there's any chance I can purchase and chuck in a few extra snakes... I'm your man. It's like the Godfather. If a bag of offal has turned up in the Gold Coast outside room 314, uh, Mr. Dyer, it's a bag of offal for you. Oh, that's... Yeah, I'll give you... Graham, I'll quickly give you one more. I'll give you one more. I went down to sign for Bristol City. There was a guy there called uh, Matty Haywood, big centre-half, came from Swindon. And um, I got this I got this car delivered. Um, I went to put my car in the garage and I gave him an Audi A4. And they give us an Audi A8 to drive around for the day. So I've got this big, bloody, you know, smashing car from the garage. I get to the training ground and what, what I did, I, I, <laughs> the lads had obviously got the keys and they filled the air vents with flour and talcum powder. So when I turned the, when, when I, and turned the air conditioning unit on high, so when I turned the ignition on, 
I got I got bloody um I got talcum powdered and, and flowered. And I've got to take this I've got to take this car back to the garage. So I'm thinking I've got to clear, pay the cleaning bill. So anyway, like I say, you mess with fire, you get burned. The following day I went and I went on the I found the yellow pages and I found this shop around the corner from the training ground called Webs and Legs Pet Shop. I bought as many crickets and grasshoppers and stick insects and flies as you possibly could imagine in these containers. And the guy in the shop said to us, he said, um, have you got any pets like um, lizards and things? I says, no, no, no. I said, I've just wanted to use this as a prank. He said, what? I said, I'm going to fill somebody's car with it. So I got Matty Hayward's keys. I emptied all these animals inside. It was like a moving aquarium inside his car, mate. And he, he left it at the train. He left it at the training ground for three days because I sent him a message saying, "Watch out for the anaconda." <laughs> Two weeks later, there was still cricket noises. He couldn't find all the crickets. I was still making that cricket noise in his car, mate. It was the funniest thing ever. Uh, that's that's two of the all-time greatest stories that have ever been told. Not not have been told on this podcast that have ever been told. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you go now with what I hope will be an agreement that. I think the country, again, apart from the parts of the country that just don't like Leeds, is excited that a a big force has been unleashed on the Premier League again. And and they're going to be Bambies. They're going to be a bit raw. It's a big jump up. Uh, You don't win Premier League security with your history. But are you excited, as somebody who talked about um, entertainers, are you excited with the, the brand of football that Bielsa ha, ha, has brought? Bielsa's doing it to win. He's not doing it to, to make everybody happy and to, to show football that's most beautiful. It's there to, to, to win. But are you enamoured of it? Hey, I don't think he knows any other way. You know, the, the, the high press, when they when he did it with Chile, they were magnificent to watch. Playing out um, from the back, getting the... You know, getting all the rotations, getting the movements, getting the players. And I, I absolutely love it. I think it's a fantastic brand of football. I think it's the way, you, when I look at Bayern Munich playing in the Champions League semi-final against Leipzig, Tuchel had his team pressing so high and basically taught, you know, Nagelmann and, and Leipzig a lesson on how you can't, if you're going to play out at all costs, you better get it right. And what I've really enjoyed watching Bielsa and speaking to a couple of players, I think Liam Cooper for me is the is the one. He was a, an apprentice at Hull City when I was at Hull. Um, a lovely kid. He, he he defended. He could. He was strong. He could head a ball. His positioning was decent. But playing out from the back, giving a ball at his feet, Liam couldn't have been a footballer. No, this is like a ball player. He knows that. He recognises that. Now to see a man in Bielsa invest him and his staff and turn this lad into a captain, a leader. And a, ba- a player now that can play out from the back, he doesn't feel pressure, he's comfortable. That, for me, knowing where Liam was at when I was with him as an apprentice and, and nobody had invested that kind of time and quality into him, that, that speaks volumes to me. He, he sees players for a few weeks and he changed them positions. You know, he, he's got them and you think, why is he putting them in there? And then all of a sudden you've got a player in a position... I think he's an absolute genius. Yeah, he might be called loco for his mad, but what he has got, he's got a team. I think he showed by his analysis that he did when he, he was happy to open that up to the press. He's got his methods. And I, I think that he, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that goes in the Premier League because when they played Arsenal in the FA Cup, I feel like they taught them a lesson. They give them a right run for their money, missed opportunities, missed chances, going to cost you against top clubs. Arsenal took their chances, but... 
that's going to be very interesting to watch and catch. It's going to catch a lot of teams out because his style is absolutely brilliant. I love it. Given your description of what Liam was and what he is now under Bielsa, that suggests to me that if academies, schools all around the country, UK, were teaching in this manner, you can begin players who aren't naturally confident ball players in terms of seeing the pass quickly or technically their first touch or the positioning or the body shape. You can actually inculcate that and it's easier to teach at 8, 9, 10, 12 than it was for Bielsa to teach Liam. That, that, you've, you've given a ray of hope. But Graham, what I will come back to you with that, um, the curriculum over here in Australia, they, they went for the Dutch curriculum and it was play out at all costs at junior levels. There was no long balls, there was no kicking, no, no long passes. It's kind of had an adverse effect because what, what's been happening, a lot of the coaches have just been drilling it into them to say you've got to do it at all cost. Now, the goalkeeper gives it the centre-half, young centre-half, say eight or nine years of age. You've got to learn your trade, but you're going to make mistakes. So that kid loses the ball, whether it's male or female, on the edge of the area, opposition win it, score goal against them. Okay? Second second time it happens, you get the ball to your feet, you lose the ball again, they score goal. That player then becomes and feels absolutely terrible because they've cost their team, they're, they're playing out at all costs. That's the way the coach wants them to play because they've been told by the FFA curriculum that we have over here that this is how all junior games must be played. We found that there's a lot of kids have been leaving the game because they haven't wanted that kind of pressure or nobody wants to play in that position because so there's there we're we're just in that situation at the moment now where we're trying to find a solution to that and allow like a, a different style of play and how we educate them rather than making them concede goals that you know like give the ball away on the edge of their own area which is going to cost them which we saw by Munich do to Leipzig so it happens in the senior game but it's just very hard for the juniors to take that on board and see it as a learning curve with the development that that it is there's so the way we're just trying to manufacture that so but yes it can be done but there's got to be some kind of um a lot more analysis and a lot more engagement and you know collaboration between the coaches over here and like you see in the UK as well the way they they want to to try and do something because that's the way the game should be played but it's very tough to to try and educate kids when they might be getting beat 10-0 and they've conceded 10 goals doing that manner it is about pressure and it's a good explanation. Just finally, um, I, I believe that you're fully integrated back as an ambassador for Leeds and that Leeds have begun to reach out to... I mean, they lost two, two fantastic legends during the COVID crisis and, and, and I particularly... Uh, Norman Hunter was a player I watched and admired and liked and liked listening to as well. And if I'm not wrong, he was from your neck of the woods and all. It's important that Leeds recognise the tradition and welcome people like you and people from your era back again, I think. Yeah, I can't I can't reiterate that enough and, and um, give a, a massive shout-out to the the vision that the club had when Andre came in. Uh, you know, Victor also doing the recruitment, Paul Bell came on, Angus Kinnear. When you've been at that club and you've, you've played... F- played for Leeds United and you've seen what the fans do on them European nights nothing nothing will ever erase that from my memory or my heart so Leeds have got a massive part there because we had I don't like using the word success because we didn't win anything in my era so I'll never say we were a successful team we we were a quality team with a quality culture with quality fans and you'll never forget that so you know it it felt horrendous when you would see what went on after we had been together in the decline of Leeds going through several managers several owners 
turmoil. It was hard to swallow because you weren't invited back, you weren't welcomed back. They felt like we played a major part in in the decline of the club when we, you know, we we didn't, and we didn't know what was going on um, behind the scenes. We it was, you know, so that was hard. And finally, I remember speaking to Ian Hart and Gary Kelly, and they were saying, "Oh, you, you know, when you're back next, you should get in touch with the club because we're being invited back as as ambassadors. The the whole culture has changed again. They see they want us to do the boxes and do the you know do the the uh, the hot match day hospitality and things. So that was refreshing to hear. I, I did a Premier League tour um, with twenty Australian fans. I took them over to watch Premier League games, and I said uh, there was four of them were Leeds fans. I said, "Listen, at the end of the trip, stay back with me. I'll drive you up, and we'll go and have a look around Ellen Road on my way back to Newcastle, the northeast." And they, they'll never forget the experience, and I'll never forget it because Paul Bell greeted us there. He said, "You're welcome. Come and have a look at the the um, Legends Lounge that we've developed. This is where the money's now. I'm going back three and a bit years now. So this was at the you know the infancy stage. They they'd invested the money in the the stadium, which needed it. They'd done the corporate boxes up. They'd done the Legends Lounges up. They'd done the the other things because they wanted the sponsors on match days to reconnect and reinvest in the football club. That's where they saw that side of it." And they were talking about, you know, potentially getting the, the players the following year and investing in some of the players. And then the year after, they had a vision and a plan to get somebody. They never said who. Obviously, it was Bielsa and his team. And it, so they, they had a vision, they had a plan, and I was just blown away. I said, do you know what it is? You've really made me re-engage and give me so, a lot more hope for this football club because it, we haven't been welcomed back. It's been in disarray. You guys have got a vision. You've got a plan. You've made me feel welcome. You've you don't, never even met my guests here. And you've just made their whole entire year. And they couldn't believe the access that we had. So that, for me, was absolutely huge. And I was, I could see where they were going to go. And then the tour of Australia last year, when they did the down-under tour against Manchester United, I'd, I'd seen the football style change as well under Bielsa, no end. And the way he worked at training with his staff, how they use the iPads, because not many of them speak English, the engagement. It was just absolutely brilliant, Graham. So it's no surprise to see where they are because it's like business. If you've got a vision, you've got a plan, and you know where you want to get to and you know how to get there, it's hard work. They, you know, It's a successful industry now, so they've, they've, they've achieved their goals and they're going to have to reset them now. And I just hope that the, you know to be an ambassador for the club and lead the Australian tour, to know that the, you've been remembered... Uh, is just is just absolutely brilliant. It'll, it'll be a part of my heart forever. Well, a nice shout out for Victor Orta, Viva España, Football Español. That's part of the reason that we were so keen and and still so thrilled to have you on here because you do represent something for us. Your heart's with Spurs. Enjoy all or nothing when it comes out. We've enjoyed listening to you. We knew in advance that your involvement with football, your brain, uh, your articulacy matched the, the the football that we thrilled to. It's been a really um, educational uh, big interview. It's hugely enjoyable. I <clears throat> long may analysing on TV and coaching in Australia last, but I also wish you one day an opportunity to to show your skills. Championship, Premier League, back in England, maybe with Spurs, maybe with Leeds. Fingers crossed for that. But for the meantime, Michael Bridges, this has been an awfully an awfully good big interview. Thank you for your kindness and your generosity. 
Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, it, it's it's nice to be remembered. I'll never forget a quote from Niall Quinn. Here's one for you. I'll ne- I spoke about him being a mentor. He told me one thing when I f- didn't sign 10 people's autographs outside the stadium. It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. So there you go. Let that stay with you. Stay safe, everybody that's listening. And um, obviously, COVID's been a tough time. I wish everybody all the best. Stay safe and good luck in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here end of the lesson.